Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and digital productions. And our second hour is something that we typically want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll be joined by Attorney L. Elion to discuss trademark law. What is it? How does it impact you and your business? So you want to get your questions in early. And speaking of questions, Bill, let's get into it. Absolutely. Our first one comes from Harshid Trevetti here on the panel from Daytona Beach, Florida. Would anyone on the panel think to get this mute switch and stand? And he's got a link there to the Rolls MS-211. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, so I would probably try and avoid that for, for the one obvious reason that it's right in front of me and I'm going to bang it continuously. So I think also it's a couple hundred bucks. So my advice would be to get a mic arm that is either not attached to the table you're sitting at or is a long distance away and well insulated. And if you need a mute switch, then the uh, the little one I have, the Rolls MS-111 mic switch, is really very useful. I don't tend to use it all the time on Zoom. I tend to press the F19 key, but there's just sometimes I really want to make sure the mic is off. And when I do, I press the mute switch. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Nigel brings up some good points. Uh, by the way, that button on there is a push-to-talk button. It is not a toggle, and it doesn't lock, which means that you either press it to talk, which could be a problem, or you press it to mute if you have to cough. So it becomes a cough switch at that point. And I also agree with Nigel on a desktop on a gooseneck, because if you need your mic to be uh, vibration-sensitive with a shock mount, you're going to hang a shock mount on a gooseneck. You're going to have problems. The gooseneck doesn't have enough friction in it to hold that microphone up. So sorry, Harshid, I'm, I'm not giving it a thumbs up. I'm giving it a thumbs down. Alex? And Rolls, I think Bill actually has one. He's probably going to talk about it a little bit. But they have a separate one, the separate box on its own. And I would highly recommend that box. Um, I wouldn't use a, a built-in uh, version of this because, it, you know, it's just you're doing too many things in one place and you, you will get all kinds of problems. And Bill. So I do have one. I've used it for the entire time I've been on office hours. This is the 211. It is a slightly different thing, or the MS-111. And I, the one thing I will say, I had some very some difficulties with it back in the very early days. Now, Rolls is a company, I think they're up in Utah or somewhere right in that area, and they have been amazingly responsive. I was having problems with clicks, and I sent my first one back, and they sent me another one, and it worked fine for a while. Then it didn't work as well for a while. So I sent it back with a nice note saying, you know, I do a show every day and I really need this to be silent. Well, a month and a half goes by. I'm using my alternate one and they send me a new one and it has been perfect ever since. That just says something about the fact that it's a small, agile company and they are paying attention. This may not be the perfect form for this new thing that they're doing, but I wonder if the same thing could happen. If people are interested in a relatively low cost, what is it, a couple hundred bucks as opposed to the studio technologies ones, which are much more sophisticated and much more capable, but far more expensive, maybe this will evolve into something if people are interested in it enough. So I just, I like the people involved there. They've been very responsive and they do have done their engineering for me and everybody else who I guess is asking for things extremely well. 
And Harshin, we I probably should have asked you to come up first if there was, did you have a specific use case with this in mind? Because just going into the comments, Mickey said for a conference where in a proper conference system um, from the likes of Bosch or Shure, like maybe that this could be used. But if, are you used, are you thinking about it for yourself? Is that the thought process? Oh, you're on mute. Not necessarily for me, but the reason why I brought it up is the fact that it had the gooseneck and the ease of use. Um, half the time, we the products for us, we know where we could place them, but not everyone understands what a mute switch does or why does it have a XLR male and a female. So I wanted to first bring it up because of the quietness and all of these products these days get the, the keyword podcasters. So I just wanted kind of our take on it. Um, I have a Proco mute switch, which is, I think, a uh, sign-off switch is what they call it at Sweetwater, but works good for me. And um, the idea is all one and the same, but what is a better mute switch? And then, you know, we get into microphones that have those uh, touch-sensitive capacitive buttons, and they are not always uh, predictive to an on-off position, so not Copy tactical. that. Thank you. Next question. Next one comes to us from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, everyone. For digital signage, what hardware and software would the panel recommend for managing multiple screens and or monitors successfully? Thanks. Mitchell? Um, I, uh, I've used a lot of different devices, everything from computers to other. Here's the thing that works really well. You see these small little uh, devices that plug into the HDMI port on the back of these uh, monitors. And the whole thing can be uh, managed and uh, uh, operated via the uh, the web uh, interface that they have associated with it. I tend to lean towards the BrightSign uh, ecosystem. They've got all kinds of devices, all kinds of uh, uh, ways to manage it. And you can manage uh, groups, uh, individual signs, and it just works great. And it's, uh, it's the price of admission has come down way far from having a dedicated computer. Courtney? Uh, yeah, I used to use some bright signs, and I used K-World media players, but they don't exist in the M30s. They don't exist anymore on television shows where monitors just had to come, you know, you turn them on and they come up playing a, a loop, uh, you know, an M, M, uh, MPEG-4 loop. Uh, but if you need to manage them remotely <clears throat> and update the uh, the data that's playing on them, and if you need to have any kind of interactivity with them, bright sign has... Uh, as Mitch said, has a, a variety of products designed to do that. You could also use, uh, these are used a lot for digital signage. This is the Melee. It's a Windows uh, Windows 11 computer. It uh, handles two 4K displays. It has gigabit Ethernet, Wi-Fi, uh, Bluetooth, and uh, it comes with Windows uh, 11 Pro, which uh, you can remote into and use headless. You can set these uh, in the BIOS to come up automatically uh, come up running uh, when power is applied to them and uh, boot and run a uh, run startup. So they're pretty good for doing uh, signage. And since they're internet connected, you can customize them to, uh, to do, to talk to them and change what's on them, et cetera, and remotely see what's playing on them, check in on them. So that's another possibility. And these are only about, these are about 200 bucks, so they're not too expensive. BrightSign is going to be a little more expensive because it's designed specifically for doing digital signing. And Alex. Yeah, there's you can centralize it and have a computer doing that, or you can also have, um, as, as Courtney said, have a variety of hardware that's available uh, for that. 
Um, the PCs are, are popular. We also see some people using Apple TVs uh, because they're, re they're relatively simple and they just can be plugged into the back, you know, just stuck like, like the main. The melee that, that Courtney has and that I have, um, you can uh, stick them to the back of a of a of a monitor. As far as software goes, um, there's a couple ones. The the most basic one is probably, I mean, the most basic one is your presentation tool, whether it's PowerPoint or Keynote or other things can be set on a loop and even password protected to not be able to be changed unless you you come in. But once you start getting to signage software, now you're probably looking at PlaySignage.com. PlaySignage.com is probably the simpler, less expensive version, and the one that is you know, used by a lot of folks is called Sedna. Um, so, so that's the, um, I think it's Sedna.de, I believe, um, uh, S-E-D-N-A.de, I believe. And that's the one that I think Phil Langer uses and he's, uh, he runs a lot of the screens in, um, for Times Square. <laughs> so, so, that, so that's a, a, that's a heavier, heavier gun, but it's, uh, but it, it will, um, it'll do the job. So those are some things to look at for the software. And there was an interesting um, workflow here. Richard says that he uses Dacboard. Hopefully I said that correctly for controlling Raspberry Pi and Orange Pi hardware connected to large displays. Next question. Dave Burke in Alexandria, Virginia is up next. I need to do Zoom calls in noisy places like loud rooms and near street noise. What's the best USB mic and or headset to minimize noise in my ears and through the mic? Preferably something cheaper than a full Alex and more discreet than a full Howard Cosell. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. I love the reference. Thanks. Howard Cosell, for those of you who might be too young, was a sportscaster famous, and he used to wear huge earmuffs and a gigantic dangling mic boom in front of his face all the time. The reason that he wore that kind of thing, though, is what we're really talking about here. That's signal-to-noise ratio. And signal-to-noise ratio, signal being the voice that you want to pick up, noise being anything else hitting your microphone, works on a physics principle called the inverse square law. And basically, if you have the distance between the mic and the sound source, you increase the signal-to-noise ratio, the positive benefits, by four times. If you move it from one of something, let's say you have a boom mic at the corner of your mouth and it's three inches away from your mouth, and you move it and adjust it to one inch, that is a nine times improvement in the signal to noise ratio and that works for every kind of microphone anyway so my suggestion to you is find one of the in uh one of the boom mounted lightweight very small mics like those from countrymen or uh oh gosh there's all sorts of companies dpa makes them a lot of people do and if you get it right at the corner of your mouth it will give you the maximum signal to noise suppression that you can get in any microphone circumstance, even better than a lavalier, which because it's four or five inches away, cannot do the same job as that little tiny mic head right at the corner of your mouth. So that's my recommendation. Alex? Yeah, there's a couple different layers of this of how 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 um, heavy you want to play. But you know, the one that I use a lot, it's not going to fix the loud that you can hear, but this is the open comm by, by shocks. Uh, and I have a couple of these and I keep them charged. Um, I, I, I have talked to a lot of folks who have given this the highest rating of how I sound uh, when I'm doing it. And I can do a lot of other things and people don't, it doesn't bother anyone. So, this, but this is no, the reason I got these is A, because of the boom here and B, because that it is bone induction. And that means that I can listen to program while I'm working and have these as comms um, in front of me. And I can have both of them kind of just automatically mixed together without having to figure it out. So um, they, these work really well. The, as far as like 
you, you, you want to stop playing around and really have something that works. You want to look at the boom, uh, theboom.com. Uh, this is, these are the folks that make the, the, the headsets for Apache helicopters. <laughs> so, so they, uh, they have a lot of noise rejection on them and they make light ones as well as really heavy, beefy ones. Uh, and if you really want to turn that off, that's probably the best, uh, the best one to, to look at. And Harshid. From my audio curiosity and research, I found that Remote Audio has some interesting stuff there, and they use 7506s for their earpiece part, and they use a bare dynamic microphone, so you might give uh, the Remote Audio, uh, Google that, and give that little uh, look, maybe you might find something that will do the cancellation for uh, loud sounds around you, and still give you a good uh, hearing ability with the 7506 earpieces uh, for the headphone part, and then bare dynamic microphone to give you quality of sound. Next question. Next one comes to us from TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yesterday's after-hour session with Andy and Zoom Cuts now has me thinking about moving to Ventura on my Mac Studio. Considering Hasmux issues with Ventura and my need to have Microsoft Remote Desktop be solid, is it safe to update from Monterey? Go ahead, Nigel. So I can't tell you about Microsoft Remote Desktop because I don't run it, but I have been running Ventura on my uh, M1 and M2 machines for many months. and But I don't run anything terribly crazy. So I think a lot of this is about how you install it. If you install it over the existing system or if you do a clean install, what particular apps you're using. You know, for those of us who use Dante, you know, you wait for Ordinate to give you a green light that, that, that uh, is going to run on the latest operating system. So check the apps. But mostly I've been running for a long time without any problems. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I want to echo what uh, Nigel just said. A clean install of any new operating system, a point system uh, where you go from two or three or Monterey to Ventura, best way to go, because you never know what kind of stuff is sort of collected in your system. I can only report that my M1 has worked fine with Ventura, but I've been using it with Ventura as long as it's been out. And Alex? Uh, yeah, I... Um... I haven't really had, I mean, I had a lot of issues when I first installed Ventura. Uh, usually the week after WWC is about when I start doing installs of the next operating system. So, or of the last operating system, um, you know, and I, I have to admit there's so many features that I need in the new, uh, in, in, uh, in Sonoma that, that I may get aggressive again on some of my computers to start testing it. But I'm trying to resist the urge to put a beta on, on anything that I, that I have here. But, um, but I think that uh, Ventura, I think has, I find that the first week or two after you install most Mac OSs, there's a lot of negotiation and things that aren't working and things that you don't have that haven't caught up. I think you're pretty close to You're as safe as you're going to be as far as upgrading goes. And, and I think that Ventura has a lot of features that, that I, would, I would recommend. And Bill? Just one caveat, because I'm still on an Intel MacBook Pro, and when I did my upgrade originally to 10.6.6, I did have some crashing and messes. It turns out after my research that it has to do with the changes in the FX plug architecture. And if you're running old stuff that used FX plug 3, as opposed to the newer environment, FX plug 4, you will have some problems. I actually had to dial back from 10.6.6 to the previous install on my laptop only. On my M2 MacBook Air, no problems at all. So if you have an older system, just be aware of that and do more due diligence about clearing off old junk that you're probably not going to use going forward. I made a mistake and didn't do that in a couple of things and paid for it with a couple hours of time to roll back. Next question. 
Uh, Richard Bolman in Defiance, Ohio says, I'd like to do a video series on the history and mythology of my hometown, similar to drive through history. This would be a solo project. Is the Zoom Q8N 4K a decent camera to have in the bag for impromptu live shoots or for impulse footage? Alex? I think it depends on what kind of phone you have. <laughs> so, so if you... Uh, the iPhone 12 or higher is probably maybe even 11 higher, but definitely 12 or higher, um, uh, is going to have a higher video quality than the Zoom. So uh, for a lot of the impromptu and interviews and so on and so forth, I'd really strongly look at, especially if you have the newer version, maybe this is a good excuse to get a new phone if you don't have one. Um, the Zoom the Zoom one, we did get some footage from uh, the, that Zoom. The, the footage isn't great. You know, like I just, you know, I think that you'll, if you're trying to shoot a documentary and you want something to shoot, I don't think that that's necessarily, I don't know if I have the right answer for you other than I would probably use my phone until I ramp, ramped up to a, a bigger camera. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the, the hard part is, is that, you know, you, you're going to put a lot of time into this. And so be really think about the, you know, I think that even spending a little bit, a little bit more money on it to make sure that you're getting um, a good camera. You know, if you get into the thousand or twelve hundred dollar range, you're going to get a micro four thirds. You're going to get, you know, um, potentially, uh, you know, you go a little bit more. You get a Sony, you know, you get a Sony for fifteen hundred, seventeen hundred dollars, or or a Blackmagic four K or six K. Those are the kind of things that I would really strongly think about if I was trying to build something that I'm going to spend hundred. You know, you have to, you're going to spend hundreds of hours on this footage, and when you shoot footage that is, uh, that is not great. Um, the, you know, the, the challenges you're going to have is it's going to look a little pixelated. Um, it's not going to handle bright light very well. Um, it's not going to be super sharp. And, and so, um, I think that you're going to, uh, feel frustrated as you edit it. Um, at, at when you spend a lot of time on it, you won't be able to color correct it. You won't be able to, you know, there's just a lot of things about it that, that make it really, really difficult, especially if you're talking about, oh, I'm just going to get out and shoot. That's when you actually need a better camera to get good footage out of a cheaper camera you need a lot of planning because you have to get the light and the dynamic range just right. Uh, and if you're not going to do that, then you may end up with some footage that is is frustrating for you. I think you made some really great points, especially the time that it's going to take to fix it by having something of... It's, it's, it's lots of time to fix it. And it's also just, you're just going to spend hundreds of hours on this project. I mean, you, you may think that it's going to be something quick, but no, nothing is less than hundreds of hours when you start talking about building these video series. And so you just want to know that if I'm going to put all that time into it, am I going to have the footage to recover, you know, make it worth that, that the time I'm putting into it? Correct. Courtney? Yeah, I agree with all the stuff that Alex said. Uh, and I would probably go for separate... Uh, even if you stay within Zoom, use the little portable, uh, little portable F1 or F2 recorders would be good to put on the person the lavalier that record uh, locally. That way you could just record long uh, audio segments uh, uh, on their own without having to worry about the video. I looked at this um, Zoom uh, Q8N 4K. It seems to be an odd duck. It, I looked at the, the media input. The media storage is on a mini SD card which is an orphan format. Uh, so I'd be careful about that. I think this was designed, you know, about five or six years ago uh, because of the, the specs on it. It seems a bit odd. And Mitchell. Now that I see the words impulse footage, um, it takes me to using my uh, Sony ZV-E10, which I have behind me. Um, it's uh, pretty cheap and you can get refurbed uh, ZV series uh, Sony cameras that all have that wonderful uh, autofocus in them. So That'd be the way to go. And also keep in mind, 
um, you need to put a lens on it that's probably going to cost more than the camera. So uh, that gives you the ref, you know, what you need as far as um, variety. Great points. And to our producers, this is a wonderful time to ask your questions and also voting up on your questions because this show is driven by you. Next question. Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington says, shopping for a KVM, keyboard video mouse, switch, what do you look for? Liked, disliked brands for two PCs and three DisplayPort monitors, mouse and keyboard. Alex? Yeah, I, I don't think I... I'm I don't know because I don't use DisplayPort very often, but but I but what I will say is that you want to think about what the decision process is. So what you're looking for is um, where are your outputs. So I like to have my outputs on a KVM on the back. Some of them will be put on the top or on the side. I find that very hard to manage. Also, do you need to be able to have remote control either via Ethernet or some kind of serial port? Um, so those are things that you might want to take take a look at and make sure that. You know, that, those are very useful. I don't have it on my desk, but a lot of the other ones that I get, I make sure that they have a serial port that I can that I can talk to. Um, so those are those are those are a couple of things to think about, and then of course your needs of inputs and outputs. Courtney, yeah, I was looking at that. The uh, if they're, I thought they were Macs since you were talking about Display Ports, but if they're PCs, if they're USB C type Display Ports, which like you find in the Macs, I found this one from uh, Sabrent, uh, which you know it's a pretty good. Uh, we've used a lot of their stuff before, but the interesting thing about it is that it has a output for keyboard and mouse here for, you know, either one is you can use a keyboard into one and a mouse into the other, but the PCs hook up over a single USB-C connector cable, C to C. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. And you can plug the power supplies for PC one and PC two in and goes through this unit as well, powering the unit. Uh, which is interesting. And the uh, it has two outputs for powering two screens over HDMI. So I thought that was kind of interesting. That's a Sabrent uh, USB Type-C dual KVM switch uh, that you can find on Amazon if your PC supports display over USB-C and you know USB mouse and keyboard over USB-C. You can handle it all through a single cable so it makes the cable mess a lot less. And pulling in a producer comment, Mickey mentions that for media production, I believe the pronunciation is Geffen. So checking out Geffen for um, per production. Next question. Next one comes from somebody named Liberty White in Atlanta, Georgia. Liberty says, we use Loom as part of our tech stack. The PIP or picture in picture on the screen stopped working. Any ideas on a fix? And she notes it defaults to Ecamm, which I uninstalled from my machine. And there's a link there to Loom. And I probably should just take a moment. So, um, yeah, so the picture in picture and anyone who's gone to the link already should show up at the bottom of the screen. So if I'm doing a record where I'm trying to show something to a client or someone on the team and I'm talking into the camera, that part should show up and it doesn't. It's always just the screen share. And I noticed that it defaults. I had Ecamm on this machine and so it would be it default to Ecamm, which does not exist. So I don't know why it's still there. And then even when I switch it to my ATEM, the my image does not show up. So any thoughts there, Alex? I don't have specific thoughts, but I will say that if it's defaulting to Ecamm, it probably means either it has a pointer to it or it's somewhere in the, there may be some still some uh, resources that are in your system file that say that there's an Ecamm there. So you want to look at the, uh, the application, you're going to have to dig into your system file to see if there's any Ecamm resources that are there. I think that there's a, 
I can't remember what it's, it's called, desk cleaner, de- uh, cleaner disk or desk cleaner that you want to, you potentially want to look at because it'll look for all the resources for something to get rid of it. If you just got rid of the app, there's more resources sitting in, in system and it could be confusing Loom because um, it may be looking at it and going, oh, it's still here, but it's not. But that's how it knows where to find it is not through the app folder, but through the resources. Um, the second thing uh, that I that I would look at is just reinstalling it completely. So just take it, you know, completely grind it down. This is the whole thing and just get rid of, not not the whole computer, but get rid of Loom and properly uninstall it again with some kind of, uh, disk cleaner uh, that that's going to look for all well, the resources. Well, it's a it it's out. a it's a web based tool, so that's what really threw me um, is yeah. like it's it's online. So, so why is it still so uh, in in you're using in Chrome? Yes. So in Chrome, make sure that you're. Have you gone in and made the default camera? Have you checked default camera in Chrome? Yes, and actually today when I recorded, it did pull the the ATEM, which I was like, oh, it's going to work, even though I'm asking this question today, right. but it didn't work. And when you go into Chrome, does it still see eCam as an option? I, I don't know, so I'll check that. Because it, if, because I would, if it's a web-based app and it's using Chrome, and I, uh, I mean, I'm sure it works for you. I would not use a, web, a web-based uh, production tool. <laughs> In production. <laughs> so so anyway, so not production. This is, oh, just, production. is purely this is just, yeah, this is okay. purely like notes sending notes to people. So, got it, yeah. got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was, so awesome. I but those those are the places that I would look. Thank you. I was I knew like my Windows days, I'm like, I know there's something that would just go through the system and I would do yeah. that, but I, I wasn't sure for yes yeah, um see, see if Chrome see if Chrome sees it as okay. a uh like if it still sees it as a drop down option, if it sees eCam and see if that that makes it, it might still see it there, and there might be a place in Chrome to just say forget this camera. Good point, Bill. So I've had a couple of programs over the course of my life that once I installed them, it was really hard to get those deep hooks that Alex was talking about out of there. Sometimes their machine language is buried so deep in things. So often if I run into that, I go on the website for the manufacturer and see if there's an official uninstall tool. And sometimes that finds... They know where they're putting those little resource allocators down deep in the code, and they know how to get rid of them best. So maybe check into that and see if there's an uninstaller for Ecamm that'll take the rest of that junk out. Thank you so much, all. Next question. Next question comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What do I get with iOS 16.5, and what is coming with iOS 17.0? Nigel? So I think with 16.5, just getting onto the latest version of code, and it, assuming you have an iPhone that supports it, I would encourage you, once they're out and they're generally acceptable, move to them. There are security, there are fixes, there are stuff that you should have on it. I don't think you'll see a lot of particularly new function. On 17, I've installed the, the beta on my my phone. It's It's working fine. I can tell you there is nothing very exciting yet. There's a few messages and a few phone stuff. Some of the voicemail stuff is is still to come. Uh, but I will tell you that if you do move to 17, if you do move to the early betas, beware your battery is going to run down very fast. This is unoptimized code. This is not code that is that is ready for production. So you you if you need it and you need it to last more than about eight hours, I would not be putting the beta on it. Go ahead, Alex. Yes, there's some of the stuff that when it's off, it plays the clock and so on and so forth. I'm looking at some of my older phones. I'm not sure how far back 17 will go. Uh, so I'm going to see if I can use them for just some heads-up displays. So some of those things look interesting. Uh, being able to share your air tags with other people uh, is 
useful in my family, given that we've got air tags everywhere <laughs> for everything. Uh, so right now, everybody has to talk to me uh, about where is the where is this thing or you know the car, you know those kinds of things. Um, and so being able to share them will be will be useful. I, I I don't think you know I think that there's a lot of other little things that are that are there, um, but I don't think that there's I mean that Maps has some some up, updates, um, but it will I'm sure that we'll get addicted to a lot of the whatever the new things are as they come out. But again, I would also, this is probably the very first beta I would not put on my main, I'm not going to put it on my main phone. Like that's not, I'm going to let it, you know, sit for Pass a while. So, right. Yeah, Pass exactly. You know, it's, yeah, you know, it needs, it needs, it needs a little time to, um, to, to get better. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. Courtney, you mentioned using a small form factor Windows PC for digital signage. Wouldn't a bright sign or similar non-Windows device have less risk of blue screening in public? Courtney? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, to some degree. Uh, the more complex and the more versatile a product is, the more chances something can go wrong. That's why I suggested, you know, the K-World media player, if you can find the the uh, M130s around, they stopped making them several years ago, so there's still a few floating around. They're great because you can just power them up. You put uh, you put an MPEG-4 file on it, and it comes up, and it starts playing it automatically and loops it uh, till the cows come home. So, uh, and it's very simple. You know, there's, there's no uh, external connection to the web, so any of that. But if you have something that's complex, for example, has to put up a web page that is updated daily or something, then a PC is probably going to do better for you. And especially if you're going to put it into a kiosk mode where there's any kind of touchscreen interaction, if it's a kiosk where the public has to interact with the signage, then you're going to want to have the PC there uh, to do it. Remember, remember, you know, all those ATMs out there are running Windows XP. So, and occasionally they will blue screen, but not very often. They're pretty robust. Alex, I I've been at airports where they're blue screened, <laughs> where all the screens are all blue, and you're like somebody's in trouble. Someone ran an update. Um, anyway, yeah. So uh, generally, I would say though that the PCs, especially in this, if that's all you're doing with it and you're not changing it a lot, uh, it should run. It should run okay. This is one of the reasons that we've had some partners use Apple TVs for this because there's some software that will run on those and they don't, they just go black, you know, when they, when they don't, when things don't work. So, um, but, uh, but I think that you're probably fine with the, most people I know are using Chrome sticks or some version of a Chrome uh, browser or, or Windows, uh, Windows machines. They're just cheaper and they, they're more versatile than, um, than necessarily using an Apple TV unless you have a specific app that's built for the folks that use Apple TVs usually build an app that they're using across hundreds of, of things and, the app they like developing the app to do what it needs to do specifically for you know a very very large location next question paul wallace in austin texas how will new apple share play features make sharing control of in-car entertainment easier for iphone users and he's got a link there to a tech crunch article alex my family actually so when we when we drive uh, there's four of us uh, we trade everybody gets the next song so there's this kind of constant passing the phone around uh, that that is tethered to the car. It was like a 10-foot uh, lightning cable in the in the car. And so everybody just gets to do the next song all the way around. And uh, this is theoretically going to make all of that unnecessary, where everyone can just use their own phone and put in whatever the next song is, and then we can all DJ together. It's, it's a, by the way, I will say that it's a great thing to do in a, in, a, in a family because the kids keep the parents up to date and the parents widen the kids, you know, uh, 
uh, understanding of, of, of music. And now my kids have a wider understanding of music than we do. So, so between, especially between my wife and I, we have very different uh, uh, music tastes. And so it's, it's definitely spread out a lot. This was a great question because my daughter and I, like, we do that too with the music thing. So that is really helpful that oh, yeah. you explaining how that will, that will work. Yeah, it's going to be great. And the only person that has to have a, a music license is the one that's connected to the car. So all the other ones can be any, any iPhones. I don't know exactly what the pairing process is, but it, I, it, I, I know it's, it seems like a simple feature, but I'm pretty excited about it. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand's up next. One for Nigel Dassau uh, specifically. My TVOS 17 dev beta has some interesting enhancements with regard to HomeKit. Have you looked at it yet? Seen TVOS undynamic island, my term. Nigel. Yeah, I haven't. Actually, the one beta I never installed is the Apple TV one, uh, partly because it is the one device that uh, I have at the center of our entertainment system. And if it goes wrong, the pain received is never worth the, uh, the value of the learning. Uh, I might install it on my backup Apple TVs, but I haven't. Uh, the HomeKit stuff uh, that I saw at, uh, on WWDC looked interesting, but it looked mo more mostly about the interface, particularly around putting it on the iPhone and on the home screen and stuff. What I didn't see, and maybe I just didn't see it, is the, is a great change in the way HomeKit's going to run an interface. And, and Alex talked, I think, some about this yesterday or the day before. At this point, HomeKit is is still too much of a wall, a walled garden, where nobody else can get into until Apple decides it seriously wants to be the hub for the home. It's just another one of the list of choices you can take for us, Alex. See, uh, my my problem is is that I actually want Apple to be uh, l play less with others and just make HomeKit be HomeKit, and then and you have to build for that, and that's it. And I know Apple has uh, avoided doing that, and so they kind of half hazardly go into this stuff. But for me, I went. I'm trying to find new outlets for my for my for my house to to because now that we have Zoom cuts. I've gotten me really into shortcuts, and now I'm like, I need, I need all these automation stuff just in my office, not the rest of the house. And I just want to see something that says this is an outlet for HomeKit, <laughs> like because I, I don't want to try to, I don't want it to be trying to figure it out. I don't want, I just want it to automatically work. And as a, as an Apple user, I think that it has damaged Apple's ability to get HomeKit working. Is trying to be multi-use, you know, because I, half the half the outlets don't work, you know, with with what I'm doing. Like I can't get them to pair. I can't get them to do stuff. And this is this has been the problem for home automation since I started trying to figure it out. Is that the pairing process and the constant talking process has always been a problem. Um, I do think that if Apple decided to do that and just said, hey, we're going to, we've talked about this yesterday, I think, if they said we're going to build the, the, the five key things, you know, the, the, that most people use, they'd probably knock a pretty deep hole into the, um, if they built them and they just worked. And I picked it up and I put it next to my iPhone and it just said, okay, I'm part of the group. Instead of I'm using a QR code that now will say it's going to take a couple minutes to, to uh, pair and then it's not going to pair. <laughs> like, you know, and so that's that's that, that's what like an hour of my time was last night trying to get a trying to get an outlet to pair, um, and the one that's the highest rated you know outlet that's supposed to be the best for HomeKit. And so this is this is what we deal with every day. And I think as Apple users, we're not used to having it be this kind of weird and funky world. And I think that Apple needs to just stop. I actually think Apple would do better if they stopped playing with everybody else and just said, 
we're going to make something that all that that totally works in our system. And if you don't make it, we'll make it, and we'll just make we'll take ninety percent of the market that is available because there's five things that would be ninety percent of the market. You know, cameras and locks and thermostats and outlets and and uh, lights. <laughs> those are the, those are the five things. And if they did that, um, I think that Apple users would be happy, and Apple would probably make billions. It would still be two percent of the market, but um, but it'd be much better than the disaster that we have right now that is HomeKit. And pulling in from the comments, Jack says that the TVOS has some nice updates. I've had, I have it on mine. It's working pretty well too. So just some folks that have already been using it are having a great time with it. Next question. Next one comes from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How does the panel create and enhance and enhance business opportunities among potential clients outside of traditional advertising? Let's start with Mitchell. Well, traditionally, you would use your demo as your best uh, uh, thing to get people's attention. They could go, wow, look what they did, or gee, that's cool. Um, unfortunately, I've moved into more corporate and pharmaceutical work. I can't show it to anybody. So uh, the challenge here is how do you get some notice so that people think you're still in the business of doing uh, video production? Um, I pick one um, uh, nonprofit a year, and I give them everything I have as much as I can. And uh, that's kind of how I lean on it. And I get a little bit of uh, buzz from that. And the other thing is I have one client that's a very high profile client that I uh, do work that's well above their normal striking range uh, that people tend to notice. So um, it's, a tough, it's a tough thing to deal with. Traditional advertising doesn't work, by the way, uh, if you're in the business of video production, because you just can't do the reach and frequency necessary to reach as many people as you need to. Bill? When I started out, my, my attitude was who's hiring, and I changed that after a few years because I found myself accepting interesting but kind of not work that I didn't really want to do from people that I didn't really want to work with. So I switched to thinking to myself, you know, it's not really that companies hire people, it's that people hire people. There's going to be somebody in a company that you want to work for that is going to be the person in charge of hiring for the job that you are hoping to get. And I started thinking, well, how can I both make myself attractive to that person and also uh, find out who it is and establish any kind of relationship? I think I've told the story before of how I landed PetSmart as a major client of mine for years. And it started with seeing that they were hiring a new hiring director. And that's causing me to think, well, they're probably going to need new people. He's coming from out of state. He doesn't know people around here. The second thing was figuring out how to get to know who that person they hired was. And that was kind of establishing a little bit of a relationship very politely on the phone with the receptionist. Eventually, I got the name. And then I sent him a little stuffed dog because it was PetSmart. And then when I eventually got on his phone line after three months of this process, he said, are you the guy that sent me the dog? And all of a sudden, we had a little tiny bit of a relationship. I was not one of the thousand resumes that he might have gotten. I was the guy who sent the dog. And he said, I don't have anything now, but I really thought that was clever and creative. And then a couple of months later, something happened on one of their shoots and it failed and he called me. And so it was that whole process of relationship building and changing from who wants anybody to who can I get to that maybe I can get a little interest going in what I can do. Go ahead, Alex. So I don't know how to do any sales. Um, you know, um, so I, I don't know how to how to do that. I'm, what I do is uh, I work with a lot of people that I like. Um, I go on a lot of shows. <laughs> one every day almost um and uh but i do things on on weekly we used to joke that uh 
um, you know, that, you know, people would always ask me why I just gave MacBreak to, to, to Leo. You know, I started MacBreak and then I just handed it off to the Twit network and there was no money that exchanged. There was no buyout. There was no nothing. And someone asked me why. And I was like, well, I make more money on MacBreak than Leo does <laughs> because of being on the show. And then people come to me and I, you know, Leo sells ads. I sell projects that, you know, average about $80,000 a unit. <laughs> so, so I don't have to sell very many for it to turn out. Um, and so, uh, so, but what happens is, is that by, by injecting a lot of use into the system. So by being useful, by answering people's questions, by helping people out, you build up a kind of a positive, uh, if you do it well, and you try not to make too many mistakes, um, sometimes I do, but, uh, but if you, uh, you, you kind of build up a positive um, reputation within an industry, and then when people are looking, they're looking for someone with that, and they, you, become, you get kind of on the short list there. The second thing is, is that uh, when, we bring, when we have another partner, so we have a partner doing something, typically they have partners. They have partners that are in that event, and we try to keep it pretty buttoned up you know, as best we can when we're talking to them. So it's a very uh, smooth, we do the best we can to make it a very smooth experience. They're not always smooth because production is production, but the idea is to take that rolling production experience and put a smooth veneer over top of it so that it feels very nice. It doesn't mean that it actually is, but they should feel that way. And a lot of times companies aren't used to that because most production companies aren't very good at that. You know, they have a tendency to, um, they t the, the, the things that make production companies um, unsavory to corporate clients is uh, line item bids that are lowballed. So a lot of people say they want to get the project pregnant. They just want to get the project into the into the system. And so they'll do a line item bid and then, with, you know, leaving a bunch of stuff out and then they'll ratchet it up. And that is an incredibly stressful experience for a, for a corporate client. And they, and if you, if, if they suddenly run into a production company that comes in a little higher, but doesn't go over, you're done. <laughs> like, like they'll, they'll, they'll just immediately drop over because they don't, they don't care about the money nearly as much as they care about not having to change the number. Um, and, and so that's something that we learned working with a lot of corporate clients. And it's, Hollywood's very different. Hollywood wants you to do it in a very specific way and they want to feel like they've, they've, they've taken all the fat out of it and, and uh, they're ruinous. <laughs> you know, that, that's how the producers want to feel like when they're in, in Hollywood. But in corporate, they just want it to not change. You know, so when you have kind of a smooth veneer and uh, and you don't change the number very often unless they really make some big changes and, uh, you know, you just have, you know, good bedside manners, you end up getting what happens every show is a potential to bring on more partners. And we did that pretty effectively for a long time. So it's a great question, Josh. And I'm going to kind of touch on this in a little bit of a reverse way because you said traditional advertising, which I'm going to, um, what I hear from that is maybe like billboards, radio, things like that. So if you're speaking from that vantage point, as Bill has been said already, is like relationships matter. I can't say that we've really done much advertising. So most of our work is coming in from referrals from some of the other agencies that we work with. So if there is something that you want to do because your question is asking how do you create and enhancing them staying in touch with the people that you've done work with in the past like the follow-up the money is in the follow-up so when you look at that you know someone has you've done work with someone x number of months ago check in and check in on them because they're so busy your clients are so busy with whatever is in front of them and trying to just make it another day with whatever project you come in with some valuable information you saw some tip and you thought about them and that top of mind because 
the advertising really is to have that top of mind awareness so that when somebody has a problem that they will, you know, they will think of you. I'm going to Alex's point. One of the things this year that we just realized whenever I teach or share content online, that there is typically some kind of like DM message, something along those lines. So I see John said something similar in the comments of like understanding where your audience is. Do they live on LinkedIn? Do they, are they really high touch? So you actually need to go out and be in the room at a conference or something like that. So one, understand your, your clients that you're looking to reach. And so because of that, I am doing more teaching to professional organizations and people that fit our avatar so that by showing the knowledge and breadth of experience that then that is without a doubt from that meeting there's some sort of follow-up and then having we've spoken about this before and i think we might need to do a second hour on just like sales funnels and what that looks like because it's not necessarily it's this it's a machine but it does not have to be daunting so our sales funnel is putting out valuable content, informational content, and then taking them and then nurturing that relationship to then ultimately, it's when they have the the, the budget or the need that then we'll be top of mind awareness to get that call. Alex? Yeah, and you know, the um, everything that I've gotten up until now has been from sharing information. So you wanna think about how that looks. So one of the lowest friction ways to do that is do things like be on this panel <laughs> because you're in front of a lot of people. We have a handful of people asking questions, a handful of people answering the questions, but a lot of people watching. And you'd be surprised at how many times I'm walking around and and uh, at, at different events getting pulled aside and talk. people talk about how much they like office hours. And so, um, but, but also, you know, posts on LinkedIn, posts on Twitter that are useful. Um, I, I do very, almost none, no promotion on Twitter of things that I'm trying to sell or do I really think through the lens of what would people following me find interesting, you know, or, and I, and I try to just be myself. I'm not trying to figure it out. I'm trying to, this is, I find it interesting. I think they'll find it interesting. I post it. Um, and so LinkedIn, I'm much more, I don't post very much there, but when I do, I try to make it, I really think about how to make it a valuable piece of content for everybody. But I think the mistake that people make on LinkedIn, especially that I see go by a lot is kind of a um, humble brag. The humble brags really don't go over nearly as well as you think they do. Like we're, we were really like the, the, we really want to, you know, we're really happy that someone let us work on their project. And this is an excuse for us to put up an, in, 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 you know, me, people like me just go, okay, got it. You know, like it's, it, it's, and so a lot of people read through that. So you got to be kind of careful, <laughs> careful of humble brags um, as opposed to here's the behind the scenes and this is what we did. Like a lot of times if I post it, I'm going to post something of like worked on this project. This is the thing that we were able to figure out, but it's very driven towards, I'm going to show you something that I learned out of this project that is, that is useful. Um, and, but really think about that because I, I think that most people don't know how, how humble brags land for everyone in LinkedIn. And just a quick example for Josh and our, our audience as well is being very thoughtful, as Alex said, with whatever content that you share, because one, you're showing, you want to show your expertise, but the most important thing is the value that it, because if you are solving a problem, I did that, I've shared this before earlier this year, I think it was January, I did that Canva AI tutorial. And yes, it went viral, but the reason it went viral is because it was like it showed so many small business owners and social media managers how they can create content in less than 30 minutes. 
like for Canva. And that is a huge like sigh of relief that people, I got so many comments because they said, literally you changed my life. Literally now I can do X, Y, Z. And that has led to speaking in different places. So the intentionality of the content and the information that you share, that's what, if you were to spend your time on anything, that's where, where I would do it. Next question. Next one comes to us from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, trying to match quality of an older 1080p camera, the JVC GYHC250, from the back of an auditorium with a mounted pan tilt zoom camera. The Marshall CV620 had way too much blooming on the sensor at wide angle. What might the panel recommend for under $2,500 US, maybe for $4,000 US? Alex? I think you want to look at the bird dogs and also the cannons. Uh, both bird dog and cannon make a lot of stuff in that range at, at a little bit more at $5,000. Do the cannon, um, there's a cannon 500, I think, the N5, CN500, I believe. Um, that is, that, you know, is really, really nice. Um, and so, uh, so I, I would take a look at the, but there's some less expensive ones that, that are there. They'll definitely have at least the quality of the JVC. Uh, and, and some of the, um, the bird dogs, I think, in the, are in that range. And I think both of those as PTZ cameras would probably uh, fit the bill that you're, trying to, that you're trying to use there. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand's next. When can we get Clawlock Lopez Waterman on to talk about recent DMX developments or updates? Alex? Yeah, I think we're, we have um, June 30th. So near the end of June, we're going to have uh, Tlaloc on, and he's going to be able to answer your questions about DMX. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vera, Florida is up next. I'm headed to Infocom later this week. Any standout exhibitors that you would visit? Courtney? Well, I kind of take the pulse of the industry and see how many projectors are there versus video walls. If you're going to look at video walls, see if Samsung is there and showing their Onyx theater screens. Alex and I had a chance to see the ones that are here in Los Angeles. One of the few installations where they set up a 34 foot screen with a very fine pitch, eight, uh, 8k screen for theatrical, you know, led screen. And it is amazing. Uh, so take a look and see if Samsung showing off its Onyx series of theatrical screens, theatrical sized screens. Alex? Yeah, Sony also has some great ones, uh, but the but the ones that we saw that, that that Courtney and I saw were just stunning, stunning, um, stunning walls by Samsung. So if you see a Samsung booth with that, um, definitely, uh, definitely take a look. Next question. Dave Kong, uh, Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. Is there a good solution that shows if Zoom is muted? Seems like the most popular statement is, you're muted. Second is, can you hear me now? <laughs> Mitchell. If you're looking for that little uh, uh, thing down the lower left-hand corner, um, there is a device that will show you whether it's muted or not, but it's not a good mute switch, but uh, the mic me will do it. Um, it lights up globally if uh, your, uh, your Zoom is muted. Uh, what a lot of us generally do here on office hours is we have it on all the time and our separate devices, whether you're using a Rolls or a studio technology, uh, is engaged on and off, and that's, that's affecting the audio downstream. Um, there are also a number of uh, devices out there that are kind of cool. Uh, Sennheiser makes a cool muting box that has uh, a tally on it. Uh, the uh, folks at Yellow Tech and their Mika line um, also has, has a device that has all kinds of cool lights that will show you whether you're muted or not. So that's sort of a secondary type situation. But the best way to go, if you want to see that little uh, cross with the X through it to see if you're muted, 
Uh, Mike May. Alex. Uh, to, to kind of build on what Mitchell said, I highly recommend a hardware mute. <laughs> like I just, I just, it is, whether you're using a Rolls like, like Bill does, uh, Mitch and I have both, uh, both have 205s, Studio Technology 205s, which are a little more expensive. But it is just, I mean, if you're doing this a lot, it, it really makes a huge difference to have a hardware mute. Um, and they're not, again, the, the Rolls are not particularly expensive and they're, they're very effective. Um, and uh, so I would, I would really think about it. It just makes it, there's so many, Things like when I'm on the road and I don't have it with me, I'm thinking to get in rolls just for my my road kit, because when I'm on the road, it just I just feel crippled, you know, by having to use the software mute and unmute on on Zoom. And Courtney, yeah, if you are gonna look, if you are looking for a hardware mute uh, solution, is get one that has a tactile switch that you can tell by feel whether it's muted or not. You know, like a push push switch where it's it's in if it's muted and it's up if it's not unmuted. So that you can tell just by running your finger across it without having to look down at it if it's muted or not. And that's really handy to have. The only problem with that is with the hardware switches is it doesn't tell you when you're double muted. Because if you're muted in Zoom and you're, you've been using your hardware switch or somebody has muted you in Zoom, which happens because they think your mic is unmuted, not knowing that you have a hardware mute down the line, they will mute you. And then when you go to unmute with your hardware switch, you're still muted. So watch out for that. It'd be nice. Uh, the other thing is to to uh, keep the button bar at the bottom of Zoom all uh, persistent. Make sure it doesn't auto hide itself because when it auto hides itself, you can't easily glance down there and see if you're muted or not. So keep it visible all the time. Next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman, who was just name checked here. Uh, Brevard, North Carolina. Has anyone tested the Unity Intercoms button on the new 3.x version of BitFocus Companion? Alex, did it work on the other one? <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I think that the, I, um, I I have found that uh, there are things that I really like to use the Stream Deck for. Things that matter um, are not usually one of them. So, um, you know, like I, I find that it's good for convenience. I find that it's a little. Uh, I find that the double clicking on it um, is is a real problem, and I don't think that that's something that can be fixed in software. Next question. Peter Moore is back from Auckland, New Zealand. JBL is advertising heavily here. Their vertical array speaker systems. Are you guys seeing that over there? Alex. I haven't seen that. I don't even know where. I don't. I haven't seen any of the vertical vertical array before the speakers that are you see kind of stacked up. Um, and I yeah, I haven't seen any any of the ads for JBL. So it must be the sites that you're going to, Peter. Seems like you have good taste. <laughs> are they are they overseas JBL? I no, they're. Don't... I mean, well, they're they are, but they're but they but they are they're all over native yeah. to. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, just, they, I think I think uh, Peter's just in a. He's been looking at lots of things around lots sound stuff. reinforcement, and so he's getting <laughs> a lot of ads. Getting stuff set up, Mitchell. Yeah, JBL is uh, part of Harman, which is owned by Samsung, and they have very deep pockets, so they can afford to go out there and try to corner the market. Um, the big players out there generally do the big concert systems like Meyer and Claire Brothers and people like that. JBL's sort of like scratching at that business, but uh, they need to spend some money to get there. All right, next question. Douglas Carmichael, I'm looking at the U.S. $499 32-inch Samsung Q60C as my TV for my apartment. Would the panel recommend any better or similar TVs in the $500 to $800 U.S. range? Go ahead, Alex. I mean, there's a lot of them. I I guess what I would say is that it it 
32 inch is really small, like for a, for a home TV. Uh, you can get a lot of things. In the $500 to $800 range, you can get a lot of things that are larger. So unless you're, uh, unless you're, you've got an issue with um, uh, the amount of space you have available to you, I would definitely look at 55 inch. Um, even at the 500 to 800 range now, 65 inches are doable. Uh, and at that range, you're, you're kind of not looking for the highest quality pixel, but getting a bigger image, I think, is worth it. Um, so I would probably look at a 55 to 65 inch. Uh, and the ones that I've had in those in that price range are uh, the Samsungs. Uh, Samsung has a variety of them. Um, the only thing I'd make sure of is, of course, that it has. Um, you know, you want to look for something. Even back, even there, they're going to have HDR monitors there. Um, TCL makes some. They're not great. <laughs> but they are they're okay. Uh, but I would look at the Samsung 55 inch five years ago was was $550. So I would go for a 55 or a 32 really quickly and probably look for a 65. Next question. Next one comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Are the eyes you see on the Apple Vision Pro actually your real eyes through a transparent window? Or is everything projected to a CRT screen? And what is the camera and display technology? Go ahead, Bill. They are not your real eyes. This is actually one of the more interesting aspects of this device is the internal electronics are opaque in that, but it has inward facing cameras. And what you do when you set it up is it takes a picture essentially of that part of your face, kind of what uh, people in the voiceover world call the mask part of your face. And then they digitize it and turn it around and display that to the outside world with a function that animates that part of your face, your eye openings, everything that the cameras that are facing inward see. So they make you into a virtual avatar two inches in front of your actual face. And it all seems to work miraculously. It gives you just a sense of what the emotions of the person behind the goggles are displaying to you as they're interacting with you. It's a really interesting effect, but it is not actually video of your face. Go ahead, Courtney. And you were on mute <laughs> after our mute question earlier. Oh, ironic. <laughs> See, I clicked and I didn't look. <laughs> right. A perfect example. So do as I say, not as I do, folks. Uh, out there. Yeah, Bill got it exactly right. It is uh, when you train the thing in the videos that I saw on it, you train it on your whole face. And that's what it generates the uh, avatar that it uses for FaceTime. And it just uses a portion of that uh, capture that it's done uh, to create its 3D avatar uh, for the eyeballs uh, display. And it's not a CRT. That would be funny with the electron guns back in your eyeballs. Uh, it, is a, it is a much lower resolution uh, uh, LED screen, uh, you know, our LCD screen uh, that's on the front of those things. And they only, you know, the only purpose of that LCD screen is to let other people feel less creepy when they're looking at you in the room. So that it really doesn't serve any other purpose. It doesn't improve your experience in any way. It's just to make other people feel more comfortable when they're looking at you in a pair of ski goggles. You know? And Alex. And beyond comfort, it tells you that you can see them because if it, if it blanks out on the front, it means that you're in a fully immersive environment. And if you can see the eyes, then it means that you're in a... Um, uh, you, that you can actually see them in front of you. So it's, it, it is a direct, it's a functional communication that you are seeing them or you're not seeing them. Next question. 
Douglas Carmichael's up next. The change I noticed on the 14-inch MacBook Pro coming from a 15-inch is that my hands felt more cramped, so to speak, moving less from the keyboard to the trackpad. Would this be related to the smaller trackpad, and would my hands adjust to the form factor over time? Alex. Now, I, there's been a couple questions about 14 inches, and I, I, I don't want to say that I told you so, but I told you so. It's cramped. <laughs> the 14 inch is cramped. And so you'll, you'll kind of adjust to it. But if you go back to another computer with a bigger keyboard and a, and, a, and a thing, you'll go back to that, getting used to that. And the 14 inch is cramped. I've had one for four years now and I, I don't like it. I'm just, I don't travel enough to make it worth uh, buying another one. I keep on buying Mac minis and Mac studios instead. But yeah, it's going to be cramped. All right. And Bill? Well, I find the human being is pretty adaptable. When I moved from my laptop into a big rig when I, on a shoot once, and I brought in my track pad to, to ape the experience I have, it took me about half a day to feel equally comfortable with just that small geometric change because I was so used to the muscle memory of where everything was. But after that half day, I adapted. So it depends on how adaptable you are. Wonderful. We are now at the top of the hour. Thank you so much, producers, for your questions. Keep them coming as we make this transition to talk about trademark law with our guest, L. Eliot, attorney L. Eliot. L. Eliot, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Liberty. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we like just preparing for today and all of the conversation are, are we had in the green room before with the panel, intellectual property, copyright, patent, like, can you clear that up for us <laughs> before we get any further today? Absolutely. So with uh, intellectual property, that is the umbrella area of law. And then you have trademarks, you have copyright, and you have patents or patents as Americans would say and each individual area is separate for your business so your business might need a trademark if you have a business name the logo a slogan or even a sound and some examples of sounds are the um Simpson Homer Simpson sound that he makes or the MGM lion those are all trademarked and for copyright, if you are writing novels or you're an artist and you have the lyrics or books or even website copy, that's what you want to have copyrighted. So that's the difference between the two. And then you've got patents, which uh, relates to inventions. So those are things that you could say like a hybrid engine or maybe pharmaceutical drugs. So they all have their own roles that they play and you would be able to decide what you need based on whether you have like based on what you have in your business. So. No, we don't hear you. Liberty, we're still don't hear you. While Liberty's working on that, uh, let, let me ask you a little bit of, can you um, separate for us? A lot of times we talk about uh, performance rights, mechanical rights, and so on and so forth. I don't know how much you dig into music itself, but but the um, but with with music, it's one of those things that that oftentimes there's some confusion of how do you license something. So let's say I'm going to cover something, cover a song. Um, what can you tell us? What licenses we would need versus if I want to use the song? Yeah, so uh, that would be again not under trademarks. That would be for copyright, mm -hmm. and with uh, a license, as long as you are 
basically the whole idea is to attribute it to the artist. So the whole even topic for intellectual property is to make sure that you're not infringing on somebody else's right. So if you would like to perform a cover song, that's correct. You had it with the performance license. If you want to be using it, say for a video you're making, especially it's very heavily regulated just to make sure that artists are getting their fair cut and they are getting the credit that they're due for creating music that we all enjoy. And so, yes, you would, it's also been made very easy to get licenses for music, even through YouTube, you can put the disclaimer. So it's all about attributing it to that artist. So uh, that was a great question. Thank you, Alex. Mm -hmm. And then you, so you didn't start in trademark and intellectual property. You started somewhere else. Can you just tell us uh, a little bit of your your story and how you got to this place as our panel gets ready to ask some questions? And I see that our producers are having some great conversations in the chat and those questions start rolling in. Absolutely. So I did actually start off in family law. Family law is what I did in the UK advocating for clients in court and I loved it I did it was very I would say it had its challenges uh, there was always drama there was always something going on and I think the reason why I fit so well into that environment is I am more of a peacemaker I would like to see people finding agreements mediating obviously looking I did children law so I was always looking out for the interests of the child and making sure that parents could see that. And I think, I, or I believe I had a gift in dealing with people in those confrontational situations where people are able to realize that it's not about I win or you win, it's about the best interests of our child. So it was something very passionate. I was very passionate about it. But after a while, so I was doing that for about 10 years. After a while, I realized I wanted to transition to something that wouldn't be like, you know, make me go home and start wondering what's going on with that family. It does take quite a mental toll on you as you go along. So I moved into intellectual property. So when I studied it uh, back in university, almost 12 years ago, that was one of my favorite subjects. And of course, in the UK and the US, it's different. But I got um, distracted or attracted to the city that never sleeps. And I ended up doing my New York bar and became a New York attorney. And once I qualified as a New York attorney, I decided I was going to go straight into trademarks and that's what I've been doing. So, yeah. You shared something really interesting in our, our prep interview that you kind of have a hobby when it comes to looking up cases that <laughs> that have either been won or lost. Can you just even talk to us about that that process and then what that means and how that helps you? Absolutely. So, yes, I do have a hobby. It's a two part hobby. I, whenever I meet someone, the first thing I like to do is let me just check if they have a trademark and I'll just go into the trademark database, which is public to all. So anyone can go in and search a trademark before they actually try and file that application. And when it comes to the cases, I like to go in and look at the cases that have been approved, the cases that have been rejected, the ones that have been abandoned. And I like to see the reasons why. I do believe it makes me one, just more aware of different things and different reasons why trademarks would be refused so that I can advise better my clients as to, okay, let's not file this trademark because it may be seen as being 
confusingly similar with another one that one's a bit more obvious but then sometimes if something is too descriptive the trademark office will come back and say sorry you can't file it it's just a description of what you do and that's one of the requirements that you're not allowed to file a trademark under so I go into these cases, I get wrapped up, I go down a rabbit hole. I'll be shocked when I find out, I can't believe this trademark was rejected. I'm like, well, why? So you can go into the case history. I see the what they sent into the uh, trademark office, what the response was, how many times they went back and forth. And sometimes, a lot of the times I've seen these trademark applications go abandoned just because the person didn't respond in time or they didn't respond at all. And that's one of the worst ones to see because they would be so close. They would get the notice of allowance to say, we are going to uh, register your trademark. You just have to send us this. And then they don't respond. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, so it's really interesting. And I've been doing that with quite a few cases. If you'd like some examples, I'd be happy to give them. Um, yes, I was going to say that was a great segue of to just how, like, what are some of the main reasons why trademarks don't get approved? And yes, any examples that you have would be great because our community of creators and production folks, we're all about those case studies to help us better serve our clients and our projects. Absolutely. So the, re the main reasons why your trademark would be refused are if it's confusingly similar to another trademark that's already on the trademark database. So not just any name out there, it has to actually be registered with the US Patent and Trademark Office. That's one of the reasons. And that can be easily avoided by doing your research before you file the trademark. You can see what's out there. You can see if it's in the same sector as you. And if there are any out there that are similar, you can do all of that before the due diligence is so important. Then another reason is if it's what's called merely descriptive. So they don't like when you have, if you're, the name of your business or the trademark is just a description of what you do. That's one of their rules. And an example of that would be Apple. Apple, obviously Apple, as we all know it, is a fruit, but as a technology company, they they actually sell technology. So that was fine. That was like a made up coincidence that their name is Apple and they don't sell apples. But if an apple orchard wanted to register Apple as their business name, theirs would most likely be denied because it's just a description of what they sell or what they do. And other competitors in that same sector would then be, would have to refrain from having Apple in their name if they sell apples. So that's another reason. And then, of course, if it's seen as being um, too, I've already said descriptive, I've already said uh, confusing. And then if it's like abusive or they think it's not in public interest to have something registered, then they won't do that either. So, yeah. And then some examples also. Sorry, Liberty, I think I got you. Oh, no, no, no. That's good. Because like, yes, we want to hear the examples and then we'll get to Courtney. Okay, awesome. So. Uh, a most recent example of a trademark that was refused that has now had a lot of attention in the media and I have been following this is the Taco Bell one, Taco Tuesday. Um, some of you may have heard LeBron James tried to trademark that some time ago and the owners of the trademark, Taco John's, they stepped in and said, no, we don't want you to trademark this because we have it trademarked and they've had it trademarked since 1989. Now, Taco Bell, all of a sudden, is trying to sweep in and 
they're signing, they actually have an active petition open saying that, well, we don't uh, think Taco Tuesday should be reserved just to Taco John's. It should be open to everyone. So they've got this petition. They're basically in simpler times. They're going to go to the court and ask for that trademark to be cancelled so that it can be freely used. So Taco John's or Taco Tuesdays has been victim to, and I'll try and keep it simple, but what's called genericide, where terms become so generic uh, that they become genericized and it's just the public, they use it often. And I've got some great examples. In the UK, we have a lot of people call a vacuum cleaner Hoover, but that's not the actual name of it. I don't know how far that goes globally. Then you have things like aspirin was genericized, the trampoline was genericized, the escalator, all of those were formerly trademarks, but because it became so public and so commonly used among the public, then that trademark protection was taken away. And what the courts will look at in these cases, because somebody might think, well, if my trademark can get so popular that it gets taken away from me, how do I protect that? You need to actually enforce your trademark rights. So once you have that trademark, the USPTO, the US Trademark Office, they aren't a an enforcement agency. So if you have a trademark, it's up to you as the trademark owner to actively make sure you are enforcing it. If you see somebody use it, send a cease and desist letter. And it's the same with Google. They've been very clever with that because people started with the term, oh, I think I'll just Google it, even if they weren't referring to Google. So Google have actually asked blogs and writers to refrain from using those terms unless they're actually talking about Google. So that's another case that I've been, I'll be watching with the Taco Bell one, but there are tons of examples of that. So those are some great examples. I see Dave in the chat saying Kleenex. I thought about that too, like instantly Kleenex has been, um, yes, Courtney. Yeah. I was wondering if you could explain it's complex. I have, I have several trademarks and had to go through all of this difference between a, uh, the different classes of trademarks and a service mark versus a trademark. And also the, um, uh, how you can claim a trademark by putting a TM when you start using it, if you've done a search and you're pretty sure you're not stepping on somebody else's toe, but you haven't registered it. The, so you can use something as a trademark, but not register it. So can you go over the differences of just a use of a trademark with a TM versus a registered trademark with the R and how your rights differ between those two? Thank you. That was a great question, Courtney. So as soon as you um, start trading in a specific name or using a logo, technically you own that trademark. So that's where it's not registered, it's not federally protected, it's not on public record, but you have the right to put that TM sign, which is for trademarks. The SM sign, it's not so common, that's actually for service marks. So if you're a service-based business, it's the same thing. It just means service mark versus trademark. So that's what you would put at the end of your name. And that would allow you to put others on notice that, listen, this is the mark of my trade that I'm using uniquely to me to be an indicator of the source of the goods or services. However, if you haven't gone ahead and registered it with the trademark office, you can't use that registered sign. So what Courtney was asking with the register, you know, the R with the circle, uh, that means that your trademark has been officially registered with the U.S. trademark office. So that gives you access to 
federal protection nationwide to be able to defend your trademark against others. Now, one thing that people don't know is if you are using that R wrongfully, it can be seen as fraud. Different countries deal with it differently. Obviously, I'm licensed in the US, but some countries like Brunei, Hong Kong, Japan, they will impose like a criminal some kind of criminal action against you. You could have a fine and or imprisonment. They take it very seriously. The US has a similar stance, but they are more open to understanding, was this an error, a genuine error, a good faith error where you didn't know that you're not allowed to use the R and you were just using it not with the intent to deceive people. If they find that there was intent to deceive or to pretend you have a registered trademark, then you could be fined, your trademark could be cancelled, you would maybe not even be allowed to register it on the trademark. So it's important for business owners, if you are at the point where you have a business name, you want to use it, you haven't. So even before you file the application, you can start using it. I would still recommend you do your research first to make sure you're not infringing on somebody else's already registered trademark. You can have that TM or SM uh, in the upper right corner and once it's registered and you receive your certificate, then you can have that that fancy little R next to your name. And Alex, what does it take to get a to you know, so the trademark? You don't need to do anything, right? I mean, you can just you just start putting the TM on it. Or is there a, is there another legal step to that? Or do you, or is that legal step taking you to registered? So that's a great question. Thank you, Alex. So the TM is you just kind of putting others on informal notice that mm-hmm. you have it with copyright is slightly different with copyright as soon as you create it you can put that c and say this is my work because i am the author you would register a copyright so that it's on public record and again you can take action if somebody else is infringing on it with trademarks however all it does is put people on notice unless you've been using it for over five years and that's a different um sort of category that's a common law contract where you would have to prove against somebody else that you've had it for this long. It can be very difficult to defend. Whereas if you have a registered trademark, so the process for that would be um, doing a search first to make sure that there are no conflicts and there's especially on the trademark database itself, then preparing your application. And I'll touch on the classes that uh, Courtney asked about earlier. I skipped over that. So Once you've done your application, you'll have to set in what class you're you're actually registering your trademark is in. So a common misconception is that as soon as you register a trademark, you own it legally, you legally own the whole word and nobody in the world can use it. But that's not the case. What actually happens is you have to select the area of business or the class that you want to register that trademark in. For example, a podcast would be a service-based class and that would be 41 under entertainment and education. If I sold clothing, then that would be class 25. So classes one to 39 are goods, so different types of goods. And then 41 up is services up to 45. So I could, I would have to determine, or you as a business owner would have to determine what class does my business fall under? And then you'll get protection in that class. And another thing to note is the trademark office, their fees go up with the more classes you add. Apple has multiple trademarks in multiple classes. 
Samsung also, because they sell phones, they sell computers, they sell fridges, and they aren't always in the same class. So with things like business owners, if you are owning like mainly predominantly clothes and that's what you want to protect, but you sell maybe stationary on the side, stationary is um, class 16. So it's a whole additional fee to add that class. If that's not your main area or your predominant point of commerce, then it's recommended to stick to your main class if it's if it doesn't mean that much to you. So once you have your class, you would also have to decide your filing basis. You can file under what's called 1B, meaning 1A, sorry, that you're using it in commerce. So something like this, you guys are already doing what you're doing with the podcast, or if I've already established my business and I haven't registered it yet, and I have proof that I am, I've been using this business, I have uh, a website, I have flyers, I have a business card, I would have to submit all of that to the trademark office so they can see how I'm actually using the mark that I want to register in my business. And then if I wasn't ready and I had this idea, and you can't trademark ideas, but if you have the name and you have a good faith intent to operate within six months and you can extend up to three years, then you can say, okay, I just want to put this name in kind of like a placeholder and I'll come back and show you when I've actually got the trademark and then I'll give you the proof. And you do have to pay additional fees for that too. Um, They love their additional fees. But once you've got that, you just have to wait for it to be, um, seen by an examining attorney. And what's interesting is there is a 12 month, nine to 12 month backlog. Currently, as of today, they are only just dealing with applications that were submitted in August, 2022. And that's because there was an influx of people who wanted to do trademarks and all these applications going in. So the trademark office was backed up and they are just slowly working through it. And if nobody opposes your trademark, then it would be registered and you get your certificate. That was a lot, but very important information, like all all with the the classes and the series, which makes sense. There are times when you can do it, uh, you can go and do it on your own, but then also having an attorney that is able to walk you through and see what opportunities there are for you to explore other areas like that. And I see the questions piling up. So people are excited to hear from you. Courtney will give you the floor and then we'll get into the questions. I was just gonna point out the, 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 the idea of classes allows two different companies to register the same trademark if they're in different classes. The classic case of this was Apple Records and Apple Computer. Two different companies, two different products, two different classes. However, when Apple started getting into music, there was a big, uh, contestant over this of who owns the trademark to Apple. I'm not sure how it came out. Do you know how it came out, El? I actually didn't follow that to the end, but I well, now that you brought it up, I will go back in. And yeah, that's exactly a really good point to raise that if you, so they can coexist in different uh, classes. So if I sell clothes, the whole idea essentially is just, they don't want customers to confuse the source of the goods they want you to be able to uniquely have your reputation and say these are my goods if a customer could get confused someone selling paint won't be the same as someone selling music but if there is that overlap then that's where it can get tricky so great observation thank you all right bill let's get into these questions 
Here we go. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina starts us off. Does trademark or copyright end at the end of your life? Can these things be passed on to a family? Great question. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So a trademark has to be renewed every 10 years. After five years of using it, you have to show them that you're still using it. And then after 10 years, you have to apply to renew it. Whereas a copyright does last, last as long as the um, the owner's lifetime or more. So it can be passed on. It's an intellectual property. So it's almost like an asset. So it can be passed on to somebody who's maybe has been put in a will. It can be licensed to someone else. You can actually transfer the whole thing to someone else while you're alive. But generally, yes, uh, trademarks have to be renewed every 10 years, but then copyright can last the lifetime of the author and and further. So yeah, great question. Next question. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada comes up next. What does it mean to fail to protect your trademark? What are the implications? Very good Another question. great question. I'm really loving these questions. So what it means is you are not actively defending your trademark, meaning if you see somebody, and we'll go back to that genericide example I was giving earlier, if you're seeing other people use the trademark and you're not sending a cease and desist letter, so you can start off with an informal conversation. You can start off by actually just going straight in with legal action. And if they don't comply, then you can take them to court. You can sue for money damages because they are infringing on your rights. So in these cases, and the the advice that has been given in general is if you have that trademark, you need to be using it actively. You have to be using it in your business. You also have to make sure that you are actively scouring the internet, checking to see if people are using your trademark or not, and if they are taking that action. So with the Taco Bell case, again, Taco John's, their position right now is that, yes, it is a very widely used term now. So many people use it. But at the same time, we've been sending out hundreds of cease and desist letters every time we see it. So that is them trying to evidence that they've actually been protecting and defending their trademark. Next question. Next one comes from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. What do your customers find the most surprising when they come to you for help? What do they find the most surprising? That's a good question. I would say they are, a lot of them are pleasantly surprised to find out that their trademark is available. They don't know, and a lot of people don't know that they can search it online, that it's a the U.S. Trademark Office has made it very easily accessible for people to do their research and find out. And there are other resources out there that you can use online. So the best part of the conversation. So I guess I think I'm answering the question, but the best part of the conversation for them is when I type in the name and I check and I'm like, yeah, your trademark's available. And they're like, oh, my gosh. And I tell them, just hold on. Let's we still have to keep doing research, but on the trademark database, it's available. I think that's probably the most surprising thing that that I can think of anyway. So in those cases, is it if if there's something that's a little similar, is that adding on some words? Is that like, how do you typically navigate that if they're like gung ho on this is what the way we want it to to be? That's where it gets tricky. Sometimes people have to almost let go of things that they may have wanted if it was a they thought it was a great idea, but it's not there. 
you can't be clever with it. So if there are, when it comes to confusingly similar, they look at the sound connotation, how it appears, how it's spelt. So again, with the Taco Tuesday, somebody tried to register T-A-K-O and then T-U-U-Z, like they really tried to like change the spelling, but no matter how you spelt it, it still sounded like Taco Tuesday. And they will say, unfortunately, it's too similar and they will deny it. So I always recommend, unless I know there's a way that it can be argued and they have a very extensive portfolio, it can go all the way up to the trademark appeal board. But unless you really are set on it, I would say go back to the drawing board or we can see if it's in the same class or not. But there are times where I would advise let's just let's strategize so that you don't waste money because as soon as you put that application in, it's non-refundable. So I would rather somebody trademark something that they can use and be proud of that won't be subject to so much opposition. Great point. Next question. Walt Palmer in Lewis, Delaware says, I recently applied for a trademark and received provisional approval. The company I used is charging $99 per quarter searching for illegal use of the mark. Other than lining their pockets, can Google search do the same job? That's really interesting. Uh, so again, uh, none of this, of course, is direct legal advice. But in terms of the Google search, yes, there are companies. And actually, that is something that I would say beware of. There are some companies because these aren't always attorneys. These could be trademark agents that charge based on what they want to charge. and. You can, everything is accessible. There are resources like the trademark database itself. So on the USPTO office, it's TESS, T-E-S-S, and it's trademark electronic search system. Then you've also got one called TMVIEW, V-I-E-W. And with sites like that, that's like a search engine where you can check a trademark globally. You can see if it's registered in a state in another country. So if you put enough time into it, and also obviously social media is a place you want to check as well, business directories. So yes, somebody could do a trademark search on their own. Just be prepared to make sure you're doing it as diligently as possible. So next question. Dave uh, Kaufman in Vancouver, BC is up next. When I look for an existing trademark, I use TESS on the U.S. patent site. It's not the best, but it is free. Is there a better free trademark search? Oh, great. So TESS, yes, it's very archaic in the way it's built and logo searches can be a nightmare. You can do TMView, the one I just mentioned. I believe it's TMView.org. They're one of my favorites. They are a bit more streamlined, a bit more updated. The technology, the software is a bit more modern. Um, but TES, it will pull, uh, uh, sorry, it will pull the same information out. So TMView, I think it's .org. You could use those. Next question. Next one comes to us from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What considerations might be good to be aware of for a broadcast show like Office Hours when showing graphics of products and company logos or content? That's a really good question. So in terms of like a show like this, for example, or even just in general for anybody with broadcasting or podcast type platforms, 
there's something called fair use that applies to copyright, also applies to trademark slightly differently. But what fair use does is it allows people to make use of the mark if it's either educational, if it's for news purposes or commentary, even for criticism, because essentially you're not using it in a way that is in your business. You're not trying to say, I'm selling these, say, Apple products on this as my business. You're comparing it. So fair use allows people to use it. You're even allowed to use these registered trademarks in parodies that comes under fair use as well. So just knowing that you don't go beyond the marks of literally commentary or education or criticism or parody, then you should be subject to the fair use policies. Next question. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. Up next, is it possible to buy another person or another company's trademark? It is. So it's like, see it as real property, same way you can sell that, you can also sell or transfer intellectual property. And so you can have it transferred, you'd have to register it with the trademark office that you're assigning it over to someone else. And just on that point with copyright, also with things like logos, when you get a logo created, before you trademark that logo, it's very important. A lot of people don't realize this. You have to get the copyright from the person who made it. So if someone's designed your logo, you need to ask them to, in writing, assign that copyright over to you so that you can then trademark it. Otherwise, they can come back and say, well, I own the copyright in this logo. So same way you can transfer both copyrights and trademarks. So to make sure that it, we're clear there. So if I had a, a copyright and let's say Alex wanted to buy that from me, then I would have to write that over to him and then he would take that. Is that part of he would then have to apply for it, but show that I am I sold it to him. Is that what you're saying? I just want to make sure that I tracked with. Yeah. You. So it's just the yeah, the copyright essentially is him assigning that over to you, not licensing, just saying this is yours now, do with it as you please. And so as the owner of that copyrighted logo or artwork, you then have the right to trademark it because when you're doing the application, you would have to say that you own the rights to trademark this logo. So yeah. That is so neat. Great question, Dave. Next question. Moving on to Mandy Van Cleve in Monroe, Ohio. What are some of the best research tools to use to cross-check a logo to avoid trademark refusal? I personally, I do it the old school way just because they, it's difficult sometimes I think with AI and I know AI is advancing and technology, but the ones that are more reliable I can't say, honestly, another one apart from the trademark electronic search system. I personally do it the manual way and I am looking for ways I can streamline it. But until I'm sure, 100% sure that I can find something that will pull everything in, I go through the design codes. So I'm hoping you design codes on a logo. When you have a logo, you each element is given a design code. So if it's Maybe you've got praying hands or you've got um, a football on it. A football might be 0.2.017. And so you'd have to go in and search. And the manual process is very time consuming. But right now it's the, the best way that I can assure that we've gone through and made sure we've pulled out all the similar logos, checked what classes they're in, seen what kind of threat they pose to the application. 
And so if I ever uh, find one that I can rely on, then I will definitely uh, find a way to send that across to you. Next question. John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. Up next, what special trademark considerations should small business owners make given the global economy? Very good question. So if you are planning to operate mainly within the United States or just even in one state, I would say federal protection with the U.S. Trademark Office. But you can always go one step further and do what's called a trademark under the Madrid Protocol. So although the Madrid Protocol doesn't automatically register your trademark in all the other countries that participate, what it does do is it simplifies that process. So if you do have a trademark pending with the U.S. Trademark Office, the Madrid Protocol is an agreement that allows you to then do that, that will be recognized, say, in the UK. They would see it um, directly from the US office, and that would have an impact on your application, but it can't guarantee that you are protected there. But I would say if you plan to do trade or commerce in other countries globally, then getting trademarks in those individual countries are also important. And there are a few cases, um, one that I knew with someone I knew personally, where the trademark was registered in America, but not in uh, West Africa, Ghana. And so there was a bit of a, there's still an ongoing battle with that. So if you know you will be global, expanding, touching at people everywhere, you do want to make sure you look at getting it trademarked in those countries that you're intending to do business in. Go ahead, Courtney. And speaking of the global implications of a trademark, a U.S. trademark, how do they handle uh, if you own a registered trademark in the United States for, let's say, a product or a service? Uh, if somebody else has taken that that same word uh, that you've registered and is using it as a URL, can you force them to, you know, they're maybe in another country or they may operate internationally. Can you force them to uh, give up that uh, URL because you know, your trademark mark.com is if they're competing in the same class as you? You can't necessarily force them because, especially if they're not within the jurisdiction of the United States, but you can argue the case as best as possible in terms of if they are reaching customers within the US territory, then at that point, that is also your territory. If they're only trading, say, in that country only, then you'll have a bit more difficulty. But when it comes to advertising in the US, posting things where US customers are likely to be, that's where you could build an argument. So if you write to them and they don't re they don't refrain from using it or they don't give up the URL, then you could always take it further. And it does get tricky with the federal courts. But as long as they're touch it touches and concerns the US, that's where you have a, a better leg to stand on, so to speak. Next question. Mike Beardmore in Reading in the UK says, how do time extensions to these protections benefit new creators who come after those who acquire those creators? I'm sorry, could you repeat that question? Sure. The question was, how do the time extensions to these protections benefit new creators who come after those who acquire those creators? So I guess this is passing a trademark or copyright along to the next generation. Yeah. Okay. So with the time extensions, that refers to things like the intent to use trademark. So when you 
do have the idea, but you aren't ready to use it yet, the time extensions will go up to three years. So each time you have six months initially to show that you've been using it in a certain way. But then if you stop using it or if you're not ready yet, you can file an extension. You can do this five times and that amounts to three years. So I guess somebody coming in later, once it's proven that they have actually acquired the trademark and they are the owners, they the onus would be on them to show how they've been using it. And if they have to get evidence from maybe a previous owner of how it, you know, it's been used in that time, then they would have to do that and submit it before you get your notice of allowance and then it gets um, published for opposition. I hope I answered that correctly or in a way you could understand. And Mike, feel free to send uh, something in the comments to make sure that we were good on that and we might be able to come back. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. Is there a cost-effective way for startup founders and independent developers to do trademark searches early in the life of their products? Our projects, excuse me. I bet a trademark conflict in a foreign jurisdiction can be expensive to resolve. Absolutely. So again, and you can hire. So doing the trademark searches upfront, a lot of the resources are free. All you would do, you would have to pay in your time instead. You'd have to pay with attention, you'd pay with time. You're still paying some kind of price to make sure you're doing that research. Whether you would rather pay an attorney to do the searches for you and handle it from top to bottom, or even a smaller solo firm or agency, obviously look into the people you hire because you want to make sure they're actually doing a good job. If you are more concerned about costs, then maybe putting aside time, scheduling time to break the search into multiple parts. Okay, today I'm going to do the US, uh, maybe up to certain amount of searches. And then another day I'm going to check this country because I know we might be doing some something there. And just doing that due diligence upfront is almost a cost-effective way. Because if you don't and you go further down the line and you find out that you have to you know, litigate over it, then that could be more expensive. So I hope that helps. Next question. Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona is interested in the DBA type thing. What is the status of doing business as in relation to other registered business names? That's good. So you can, when you register the business, you can decide what you register. You can do what the business is actually called. You can do what you're doing business as, or you could do both. Some people do both depending on what is front and center. If you are doing business as, that is most likely going to be front and center. And the owner of the application could be either the company and you could add in that this is also your DBA. That way you can also give additional evidence that you're using it in the business as the business and you'd like to trademark that because you're doing business in that name. Next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman, what are the costs of registering a trademark and keeping it up to date? Great question. So you have, if you're filing a trademark by yourself without the help of an attorney, you can file the, and this is if you have one class. So again, as I mentioned earlier, the classes, the cost for the classes are increased. Um, if you don't have everything ready also, you may have to pay extra, but at a base rate, you'd be paying $250 to the US trademark office. So that is if you have an application that is completely ready, completely prepared, and you don't have 
anything else to give, as in like you don't have any evidence to give. If you are going to be filing as a intent to use basis, at that point you could file for 250, but you'd have to pay another $100 later if you are intending to give your statement of use at a later date. And then if you have additional classes, so say you want to do t-shirts and you want to do notebooks, that would be an additional $225 per additional class. And it goes up like that. And then you would have to make sure you're renewing it. So the renewal point is after five years and then again at 10 years. So just to show that you're using it still for five years and then renewing it again at 10 years. And that's if you're doing it yourself. And then of course, there are various different packages and attorneys. You can find agents as well from as little as maybe $500 package to I've seen some at $3,000, $4,000 packages. So it varies. See what you can find. And of course, do your research into whoever you hire. Thank you. Next question. Sky Gleason in Edmonton, Washington, or Edmonds, Washington, says, I remember something called LexisNexis search to find out about trademark and copyright. Has the internet replaced that tool? Well, ne LexisNexis is a very broad tool. I don't think that's being used as frequently. I personally, in law school, used LexisNexis in the UK to find cases and case law. I know it's used a bit differently in the US, but they... The format and structure of their business has changed quite a lot over the years. So I'm not entirely sure if they are still doing searches. I don't think it's as common to use that anymore just because they've branched into different areas and different uses. But you could still have a look. But from what I understand, I don't use it. I just use the actual trademark office database instead. Next question. Next question comes from Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, BC. What's the difference between a trademark and a word mark? Okay, so that's a good question. The trademark is the what you're registering as a whole or a service mark, but you can register the word. So Nike, for example, they've registered the word, or you could register the logo. So that would be the little swooshy tick thing or check mark. That's the logo mark. Or you could have a combination of both. So they've also registered Nike with the swoosh together as one. So that would be deemed as a logo with the words Nike spelled out. But they've done different variations. Same with people like Starbucks. Starbucks have registered the word mark, which is Starbucks, just the words in plain letters. And then they've also registered their logo. And that's their logo mark, which is the trademark as well. So that still comes under the same body. And they've registered the logo with the words as well, just to make sure they're protecting themselves in all various shapes and formats to make sure that they're fully covered. So, yeah. Next question. Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona says, I've heard of cases in which trademark registration was denied because the proposed trademark had an offensive meaning in a different language or culture. Does this only apply to worldwide trademark applications? That's a good question. It depends. It doesn't only apply to worldwide ones, but where they, so on the trademark application, you do have to say if there is another meaning to it, if there has, if there's a translation to it. And based on that, the examining attorney will 
decide maybe if it's like Spanish is very widely spoken if it was offensive and a lot of people would understand it within the US they could have they have the discretion to refuse it and for the basically for public interest for the national interest so it doesn't just relate to worldwide ones it could be within the US as well next question Walt Palmer in Lewis Delaware are there advantages and or disadvantages to protecting trademarks globally? There certainly are, uh, especially if you know your brand is an amazing brand that you plan to actually give to the world, not just within the US or not just within one country. And an example of, and this is a bit of a different one, but there was, um, Coachella was going through something with some the what I was talking about in Ghana, they hadn't registered Coachella in Ghana, but then there were other brands, not exactly the same Afrochella that were using the cella part. They didn't like that, but the issue was they hadn't registered in Ghana. And so that got a bit more complex because with Ghana being in Africa, it's technically out of the US. Well, it is out of the US, but where it's being marketed in the US, that's where now it's coming to touch and concern um, commerce within the US. So because they hadn't taken the steps to go as global as they could have, and it can be quite tedious going through country by country to make sure you're registered, but that's where you'll get the biggest protection, especially if you plan to sell online. If you're like a store that is like in one state, you are like a brick and mortar or you're not really selling online, then you're a bit it is a bit more easy for you because you're not, you know, selling globally. But if you have an online business that customers can purchase from other countries, then I would say it's worth considering global protection as well. So you can't really send a like cease and desist to, in this case, like, hey, folks in Ghana, this is our name. Can you do that from a global perspective? Or you can. You can and they did. But where at that point it's in the jurisdiction. So where the, the biggest issue there with that case is the fact that the event happens in Ghana, it's run by people from Ghana. And it's it doesn't come to the US at all. But then they had the argument of it being marketed in the US. And so it just goes into litigation. And that's where it gets more uh, costly, if anything. So got it. That makes that makes sense. Next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana, back again with this one. Jack Daniels is fighting a dog toy that looks too much like their whiskey. The case made it to the Supreme Court of the United States. How might this become a bigger issue in the age of AI-generated designs? Is it now too easy to borrow trademarks? That's a really good question, and I hadn't heard of that Jack Daniels case, so another one to add to the list amongst many. But what's interesting, especially in this world of AI, the trademark office and the copyright office right now, the place they're at is they aren't considering applications that aren't created by humans. So when you're filing the application, the owner, especially with copyright right now, because that's where artwork and things come in, they are still at the place and it's still evolving. They're still having a lot of conversations in the Supreme Courts. It's Obviously, this has come so rapidly and the way it's affecting law and, you know, they can't just all of a sudden like start enforcing all laws that relate to AI. They need to test it out and see. I do think though that 
they are going to be very cautious of still protecting people's rights. If you have a trademark and you own the trademark, you own a piece of artwork and that is legally yours because you've registered it. I think the approach that they are taking is we are going to protect and enforce or enforce rights of those who own it over artificial intelligence especially if it's infringing on those rights so really good question john you have something to add what if a portion of that is generated by a computer and the majority of it is is uh, original art so with that again with trademarks it's not such a they're not looking at the artwork per se that's more of a copyright arena but they are still going to you have to sign an affidavit basically at the end of each one to say that you are the owner and some of it is okay if it's the logo that's been created as long as it's not infringing. So normally these cases actually only crop up when somebody says, hey, this is infringing on my right. But then if it is similar, too similar to something that's already registered, then at that point they would say it's not the case that AI created it, it's the case that it's just too similar. So if you can get AI to maybe create something that is not confusingly similar to something that's already federally protected, then you may have a better chance as opposed to saying that, um, sorry, yeah, so saying that you are the one who created it versus an AI. So it's more about how it looks and whether it confuses others with another protected brand, if that helps. Yeah, that's a great way to clarify that, because as we see people creating so many things, just making that distinction to help as our community goes on to create and implement AI in their, different aspects of their, their work. Next question. Claw looks back from uh, Brevard, North Carolina. How close is the trademark protected? If something looks or sounds similar, is there any possible action you can take? Absolutely. So another great question. With trademarks, they are very, with the US Trademark Office, the scrutinization process is very detailed. I've seen trademarks rejected for, again, sounding like something, even if it's spelt differently. They even go as far to say the average customer, if they heard, say, like somebody might add on an extra word, like maybe Apple or the Apple they're going to say, well, a customer, an average consumer, they're going to hear what's the dominant word that they're going to hear. Most likely it's going to be Apple. So you adding the to the beginning of Apple and saying, yes, we sell technology, but we are the Apple, not Apple. They're going to say that is too similar because the predominant word and as soon as, so they go as far as how it sounds, how it looks, if it's a logo, how it's being used in commerce. And if customers, an average customer upon hearing it or seeing it, Will think that there's some kind of affiliation so it is quite broad and then with logos also or with when you have a registered trademark an additional protection which i didn't mention is you can actually register your logo with the us customs office and border protection so that that will stop the import of um, counterfeit goods coming in they have a register that they can check so you have additional protection when it's federally protected. So it's really quite broad. Mm -hmm. Next question. Douglas Carmichael. Up next, Harley Davidson, the motorcycle people, famously tried to trademark the sound of their V-twin motorcycle engine. What experience have you had with non-written or graphical trademarks? That's good. So with sounds, it can be, it can be a tricky one. There are a bunch of sounds registered that 
they go through a harder process. Like for example, the raw, raw from the MGM entertainment, that lion at the beginning or things like, it's more about how distinctive it is. So things like the Homer Simpson, and I'm not going to make the sound, but that sound he makes when he's like, don't, I kind of did, but that is trademarked because it's very distinctive and people will um, attribute that to the Simpsons. Whereas uh, Cardi B also had a sound where she was saying like, okay, with the R's on the end, tried to trademark that, something like that. She, the argument was from the trademark office that she wasn't actually using it in connection with some kind of business. So she was saying it, it was hers, everybody attributed it to her, but without her being able to tie it to something she's actually using in commerce or intending to use in commerce, they wouldn't register it. So they are very particular, especially when it comes to distinctiveness. And with Harley Davidson, I could imagine like a motorcycle. I don't know much about them. Maybe they think it's so distinct, but I'm sure another engine could sound like that without trying to, or maybe not. I don't want to offend any Harley Davidson riders if it doesn't work like that, but it's more about how distinct and how unique it is. Next question. I think you dodged a bullet there. Uh, Tlaloc <laughs> Lopez Waterman and again says, are logos trademarks or trademarkable? Yes. Yes, they are. Sorry, I thought there was. Yes. So logos are trademarkable and they can be your trademark. So it's the same process to file with the trademark office. So you can always, and I recommend if you have a logo for your business or brand, then yes, trademark it. And that would be what sets you apart as you are the owner of the goods or services. So great question. Well, we are coming down to the end of our show and just like all of these questions and just to even say in the chat, uh, Dr. Clark even said like phenomenal guests and that, you know, sorry if we felt like we put you through the bar exam <laughs> just with some of our, our questions. But unbeknownst to Dr. Clark, you actually help people prepare for the bar exam. If you want to touch on that as we get ready to close out. I do. So I am also a bar exam coach. I when I passed the bar the New York bar it was such a ride to get there there were so many things I learned along the way and more importantly I learned a lot of mistakes through my own experience and I I'm very passionate about teaching people whether it comes to their business and trademarks I'm sorry very passionate about making sure people know what to do but especially when I feel like I had to figure it out on my own so I teach students who are doing the bar exam in the US I also have students in the UK for the LLB the undergrad but yes it's been one of the great things that I've done I really enjoy it I'm like listen I made all the mistakes so you don't have to and I have students come to me they I, I know where they've been. And so being able to identify where they're stuck and help them through it, even if it's just things like increasing your typing speed, being very practical and strategizing how you can pass the exam, it's a, it's a real big passion of mine. So just educating people on the law in general. Yes. So I didn't mind about the bar exam. I've been there before. So thank you. <laughs> And before we go, any parting words? You've shared so much advice. If there was one other thing of all that you've shared, you might want to repeat that to just say, hey, office hours, community, and those watching, when it comes to your trademarks, if there's one thing that you heard today, this is it. 
absolutely. Thank you so much. I would say to the Office Hours global community, if you you have a brand, you're building it up, the last thing you would want, even whether you worked hard for it or not, if you have a brand, the last thing you want is for somebody else to be able to affiliate themselves with you. You're building a reputation. You are, you know, working to know to be who you are so that customers can appreciate you for who you are. And just taking that step, that extra step to find out what you have to do. Reach out to someone if you need to get your trademark registered. It will be a really, it just gives you so much protection. There are so many benefits. So just at least look into it. That's all I'll say. Just look into it at the very least. Take the first step. So that's it. Thank you, Liberty. Thank you so much, Elle. This was fantastic. Uh, to our producers, thank you so much for all of your questions. That was a lot. And we do a lot of questions on money, though, but that was a lot. We'll have to check with John, John on the on the data there of how many questions we went through this hour. But I do also want to say, panelists, thank you so much for your insights and all of your contributions and our back-end team, without which this could not be possible. Now, just a quick reminder that tomorrow for Tuesday's show that we'll be talking about getting started with 3D printing. And we actually also have a lab tomorrow. So it'll be a show workshop and just training for upcoming office hours, whether that's panelists, readers and hosts and the crew. So join us tomorrow for that. If you want to learn more about the schedule for the week, head over to officehours.global. And so we have gone on the Talik Traversal 97, uh, 97,552 miles. That's 156,994 kilometers. That's more than 772 million bananas for scale. And that's 3.9 times around the earth. So <laughs> that was a lot. We went really far today. So again, thank you so much. And we'll see you in after hours. Bye. Good job. Just checked in. Bananas for scale is not a registered trademark. I think <laughs> Let's register it. Let's register bananas for scale. And in my that lawsuit with Reddit. And everything said with a British accent is so much better. It is, admittedly. So I, it must I, be I wonder if, if you walk into if you walk into some court cases and, and, and they see they see you start talking and they're like, uh, uh Your Honor, I, I we, we give up because they have an English accent. We're never going to survive here. This, the jury's just not going to take us seriously because there's a lawyer with an English accent. It's, right, yeah, it's something like that. <laughs> like you'd be shocked at how many audiobooks prescribe I need someone with a British accent. <laughs>